Let us pray. Lord, we have entered your sanctuary. We have opened the book of life. The book that gives us the truth about our purpose on earth and who you are. We have read your words. And now, God, I ask that you would speak to each one of us, O God. Help us understand what this means. Allow us to connect these words with our lives. Soften our hearts. May we not fight with these words, but may we receive them and believe in them. Anoint my lips. You lead the way as we depart from this world and enter your heavenly place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And that is exactly what we do when we read God's word. We depart from this world as it is and enter a most sacred place, a heavenly place. For these words are not just mere words written on paper, but these are God's eternal word. Now there might be two people today that I speak to. There could be one, only one person in this room that these words will be meaningful to. Like the one sheep that is lost. I don't know the hearts, the minds, and the circumstances of the people who gather here in person and online. This might be only for you. And the second person that this might speak to is that individual who the enemy tried everything this past week or even this morning to prevent you from coming. The Lord has a word for you. Please open your ears. Do you know what the most searched verse has been these past two years throughout the world? And you say, how would you know? Well, there's a very popular app on a phone. It's called YouVersion. It's the most popular Bible app in the world. It's downloaded on 100 million phones throughout the world. Looking at a survey on a website that I recently came across revealed that during the pandemic, there was an 80% increase in downloads. Over 600 million people worldwide looked at this particular verse. Now, in most years, the most popular verse on you version has been John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son that whoever shall believe in him shall never perish. Or Jeremiah 29 verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, 
declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. But these past two years, a very unexpected contender made its way to most people's phones. The number one most read Bible verse on version in 2020 and still in 2021 comes to us from Isaiah 41, verse 10. Let me read this to you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That verse was not only the most searched verse in 2020 and 2021, but the most read and the most bookmarked. People wanted to return to that verse regularly the past year and a half. But here's the obvious question. Are we surprised? 2020 was a terrible year and stirred up a lot of anxiety for many people throughout the world. The psychologists of the 20th century talked about existential anxiety. So one might be afraid of something in front of them, something that particularly that threatens them, but underneath all the particular threats, there's a deep level of fear. The existential anxiety, they called it, which is born out of the fallenness, I believe, of humanity and our finiteness, finitude. We will get to this in a moment. And a year like 2020 only provoked and heightened that anxiety that lays hidden underneath the fallen, finite human being. It just exposed it. It elevated it. It amplified it. It took it to heights that we in our lifetime have not seen. Think about the hundreds of thousands of people who died this past year and a half. So I'm not surprised that Isaiah was that verse, the most popular verse of not being afraid, the one that was returned to regularly. The Bible itself is a response to fear. What does the Bible say? Perfect love, and that's what God is, cast out what? Not hate, but fear. And in some sense, this is the primordial struggle between fear and love. That's the primordial struggle, struggle, fear and love. I want to give you an example of someone who lived by this love and one who was not afraid. The opening words of Isaiah, do not be afraid, was actually one of John Paul II, the Pope, John Paul II's most popular theme and commemoration throughout his papacy. Commendation, forgive me, throughout his papacy. 
Now think about how remarkable it is that this individual championed and echoed as a ministry theme, do not be afraid. If you come from a Roman Catholic background, you would know this. If you don't, then that's fine. But he made it an effort throughout his papacy to champion, to campaign, to echo, do not be afraid as a tenant of his ministry. You have to remember that this man, John Paul II, was first Carol Wojtyla, who endured the first horrific, horrific oppression of the Nazis. His hometown of Krakow, I believe that's how you pronounce it, was overwhelmed. His country was held captive. Hundreds and thousands of people died. People being murdered left and right in Poland. The Auschwitz concentration camp was only 30 minutes away from where he grew up. This only followed, the Nazism of his day only followed with communism that came in to replace that vicious ideology. An oppressive dictatorship came right after Nazism, a murderous regime. And John Paul II, as a young man, experienced the very worst of humanity. And I don't exaggerate when I say the worst of humanity. The 20th century, arguably the worst on record in terms of destructiveness and moral collapse. And here is this man who lived in Poland. And where he lived was right between the west of Nazism and the east of communism. He lived in the apex of those destructive ideologies. So if there was anyone, anyone who had the right to be afraid, it was John Paul II. But no, he said, do not be afraid. But many of his day who came into age in that era did just that. Think of the existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre or Albert Camus, the French existentialist. They all argued, this is it. Life is absurd. Life is full of suffering. There is no meaning outside of suffering. This leads to nihilism, that nothing has meaning but suffering. But interestingly, their contemporary, Pope John Paul II, championed and provided a great witness to the world as a figure in society, as, long, as well as these other individuals, his voice carried. Why did his voice carry? Because of his witness, because of his faith in the Christian story, in the Christian belief in Jesus Christ. Because it's only Christianity that proclaims that God himself took the journey into the horrors of human experience and overcame it. It's only in the Christian faith that we get a story of redemption that looks at evil right in the eye and defeats it. 
That's what made this man so different in his day compared to his contemporaries. Okay. So you say, Father Raster, thanks for the history lesson, but what does this have anything to do with the gospel of Mark? We'll get there. You see the birth, the impetus, the justification of do not worry that belief that John Paul II found, subscribed to, and championed is found in a text like Mark that we just read. In the life and teachings of Christ. And so let's look at it closely. Notice from beginning to the end of what we just read, Jesus is in control. He has just, he, he has just fed 5,000 people through the help of his disciples. And now he instructs his disciples to get on a boat and go to the other side of Bethsaida. And he himself will go on a mountain to pray. He's on the land, it says, while the disciples are on the boat. And notice that the scriptures say that the disciples begin to struggle on the boat, on the oars of the boat, because there was a great wind, it says. And this happens at the fourth hour of the watch. You have to remember and know that there was four watches at night. 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., 9 p.m. to 12 a.m., 12 a.m. to 3 a.m., 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. If this was the fourth hour, the fourth watch, it would be somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. before the sun rose. So this was the darkest time of the night, and the disciples are there, the wind is blowing, Jesus is seeing this, arguably, potentially, for some time. And then he decides to come to them. He sees them struggling for some time, but chooses at his own discretion when to come towards his disciples. He sees them, it says, their struggle. Take a moment here. The Lord sees the troubles of his people. And in due time, he will come to them and help them. The same eye that saw the disciples in need sees you and me. Whatever circumstances we're in, the Lord sees. We are never beyond the reach of his care. He always comes at the right time. Jesus will see us and not forsake us the same way he saw them and did not forsake them. As I said, there's somebody in this room that needs to hear this. He moves in our lives when he moves that is when he chooses to move the text doesn't tell us why he went but the text tells us he did go to them sometimes we could be in life being tossed by the winds and at the oars of life and struggling in life and wondering where is god god will come 
to our rescue at his time. He doesn't immediately come to his disciples when he sees them struggle. He comes to them at the fourth hour watch. That's a mystery. The text doesn't tell us why he chose to come at the fourth hour watch versus the third hour watch. They've been out there for some time. What's important and what matters and what's clear is that God does come to his people according to his time and his purpose. As we struggle and experience the oars of life trying to navigate through the turbulent times we might be facing right now, right now, and we're wondering, where is God? Is he delaying? Why not sooner than later? God will come, but on his timing. He sees things we don't see. He factors in things we don't factor. He might want us to grow. He might want us to reach a point where we exhaust all our options, all our efforts, so that we can realize and accept that it was his doing so we can give him the praise. So there's no doubt in our minds it wasn't us who delivered us from that situation, but it was him. And those are two possible scenarios why God decides to show up when he decides to show up. Not according to our ways or methods. Jesus didn't swim across the sea. Jesus didn't jump onto a boat. Jesus walked on water. Again, the method by which God will come to us and redeem us and rescue us is his prerogative. Not only the timing, but the method. But do not grow weary. The Lord sees our struggle. And what is our struggle? It could be health. It could be this anxiety of fear, of finances. How am I going to continue to live? I have a family. How am I going to be able to maintain this lifestyle? My business isn't what it once was. My health isn't what it once was. I have a fear. I'm struggling. The relationship that I'm in, the marriage that I'm in, this person might leave me. We're struggling, aren't we, in life? At the oars, navigating through that tumultuous period. Where is God? He comes. Notice he's not worried by the wind. God is not worried by the wind. Again, he's in control. God is sovereign. My father, my, my father, blessed be my father, who passed away a few years ago, who had a faith in God. He was a great example for me as a child who took me to church regularly. But as I grew up, I realized something. 
my father's faith in God, no doubt he believed in God, was, if you will, something like this. And his problems were the size of this room. And so the fear and the anxiety overwhelmed him. He believed in God, but the circumstances overwhelmed him. It's supposed to be the opposite way. Our fears, our anxieties, our struggles should be this big. And our view of God should be the size of this room. A lot of symbolism here. The waters represent chaos, turbulent chaos. Biblically, the symbolism of water's always been that of destruction of chaos. The boat, that's our lives, being tossed up and down, ebbs and flows, highs and lows. But the great thing is that God comes to our boat, our lives. He's above the waters of chaos and destruction. And it says that he meant to pass them by as he was walking on the waters, a miraculous feat. He, was, he meant to pass them by, which echoes Exodus 33, when God wanted to reveal his glory to Moses and pass him by. God wants to reveal to his disciples, to you and to me, his glory. But sometimes we get so afraid because we have the wrong view of God. They saw a ghost. They didn't see God as God. And so they're overwhelmed. And that's what religion is often. A wrong view of God can leave somebody paralyzed and afraid of this loving, merciful, compassionate, saving God. It's the work of the enemy. He wanted to reveal his glory, but he sees them cry out, and he comes to them. What a faithful picture of a human being, though. These men are no different than any of us, I think. We often are, we would react the same way if we saw this vague figure that looked like a ghost walking on water. Wouldn't we be afraid? But they're afraid. But what does Jesus say? He immediately comes to them at that point when they're afraid. He was going to pass them by. When he saw them afraid, he comes to them and he says, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. It is I. Ego a me in Greek. And anybody reading this in the first century in Greek would have known the Septuagint written in Greek, the Old Testament. Ego a me, again, echoes the divine name. When Moses was standing before the burning bush and God said, I am who I am. Ego and me. So not only do you have a Christophany, well, Jesus revealing his power walking on water, that he is the Messiah that's come as a representative of God, but also you have a theophany. This is a moment where God is revealing himself to his disciples. It is I. Do not be afraid. The divine name is evoked here. Paul Tillich a Protestant theologian who came to age in World War I. He was a chaplain in World War I. Now imagine being a chaplain in World War I. 
he had to endure, at the very least, 50 or 60,000 dead bodies over one weekend. Imagine being a Christian and trying to make sense of your Christian faith and reconciling what you believe about a loving God, a powerful God, and evil. Trying to be a voice of hope and peace in a time of so much evil and destruction. He came up with this one-liner. Finitude in awareness is anxiety. In other words, to be finite and to know it is to be afraid. You see, because Tillich believed there was four reasons that caused us to be afraid. Time, space, causality, and substance. That might sound abstract. I'll simplify it. Time. Aren't we afraid of time? We're born. We can't control the time. I'm aging. My death is inevitable. We are fixed. I'm hopeless when it comes to stopping time. I can't control it. Neither can you. Space, depending on where I live. Earthquakes in California. There's fires here. The space I live in leads to anxiety, often. Causality is like saying contingency. We're always contingent to something. That's the argument of contingency. That what we feel, we just know that we are contingent on oxygen, on food, on our surroundings. And lastly, substance. We're just a thing. Just like a telephone or a TV screen, we can be eliminated. We can be destroyed. And so Paul Tillich argued that these were the four things that fundamentally drove people anxious. And he's tapping into another philosopher during his age, Martin Heidinger, who said, Zim, zoom, tota, being towards death. This is the landscape of the 20th century, that life is suffering because inherently, as I said in the beginning, every human being is fallen, we would believe as Christians, and we're finite creatures who are limited to time and space, causality and substance. But here's the good news for you and for me who proclaim Jesus as Lord, that we align ourselves with one who transcends time, one who transcends space, one who transcends causality, and one who is the being of all things. The eternal word of God surpasses time. He is not measured in any sort of limit like we because he's beyond space. And he's not contingent upon anything. He is the first uncaused cause. And he is being itself. And so when we connect ourselves with a transcendent being, we align ourselves with him, Jesus Christ, the eternal word that became flesh. We too can overcome fears of time, space, causality, substance. Now that might sound kind of philosophical and heavy. I don't think it is. But the idea is when they see Jesus they, and hear his verse, words, it is I, do not be afraid. The scripture says that they are astonished. And that's what the challenge is for both you and for me because perfect love casts out fear. God is perfect love. And so wherever you are today, I want to highlight that verse. 
he got into the boat with them. That is my favorite part of this story. It's not that he walked on water. It's not that he was up on praying, on the mountain praying. No, that he got on into the boat with them. Jesus Christ entered, this is the incarnation. He came into the boat, our lives, human experience. He came into the boat. He didn't allow them to be overwhelmed by themselves and be afraid and paralyzed. No, he joined us. He came into the human story. God did. And here, that wooden boat, that wooden cross, that is the great love of God. And the wind ceased. God is sovereign. The wind ceased. Death Fear ceases when God enters humanity. We are in the boat of life. What are you fixing your eyes on? Allow your faith. Allow your faith to see him as he is, the great I am. And the one that went up that hill on Golgotha, whose hands were pierced to that wooden cross and his feet, for you and for me. How do we respond? If you're right now afraid, remember the disciples themselves once were afraid. But Jesus says, Lo, I have overcome the world. Lord, may these words help us and draw us closer to you in faith. In your name, amen.